round of applause. Amen. Hey, thank you, guys. If you haven't had a chance, I uh, just want to introduce Marley to you. She was not expecting this, I know, but this is Marley. She's new up here, so beautiful voice and, and great team. We're super blessed. Hey, uh, if I have not met you yet, my name is Jesse, and I'm part of a tremendous team here, part of the pastoral team, and for the most part, I'm the one who handles most of the preaching duties, and I just want to welcome you here. One of the things that uh, we do pray for uh, is for individuals who have never been to our church to come and to feel welcome and to feel loved. In fact, one of the things we also pray for is that people who, who are seeking who Jesus is, or maybe they're new to the faith or they're questioning who God is, and if that's you this morning, I just want to tell you we are really glad you are here, and we've been praying for you, and we're stoked to see you. If you are new and you want to get plugged in, uh, you want a little bit more information about who we are, we have a little info booth in our little tight quarters that we call a foyer, and at that info booth is a gift for you, uh, and, and we want to give you a packet about us as a church and a free book that we like to give our visitors. So if that's you, please um, check that out. <clears throat> and then we are in the book of Galatians, so go ahead and turn to chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, raise your hand, and one of the ushers would love to hand you one of our Bibles. And as we say around here, if you don't have a Bible uh, and you want one, take this one for free. If you want a nicer Bible, you can find them at the Lost and Found booth. If you want a new Bible, you can get them in the bookstore. Um, so I encourage you to turn there. And then I just want to highlight a couple things. Uh, one is on, on Halloween Day, what we choose to do as a church is we choose to redeem. We're not celebrating Halloween. We're redeeming October 31st. So I don't know if you know this or not, but do you know who owns October 31st? Jesus. He still owns it. You know who also owns candy? Je well, Jesus. Uh, that's a debated thing. Uh, a few, I had a parent in the first service say, no, Satan definitely owns candy. Um, uh, but uh, at, at any rate, what we choose to do, uh, which I don't know if you know this or not, but October 31st, ironically enough, is also the day that we celebrate uh, the Reformation. I think it's 505, was it one? I thought, last, I thought a few years ago it was 500. Are you sure? No? Okay. Now that I'm challenging, you're like, I don't know. It's, it's over 500 years. Um, maybe 501, says Anka. She's, she's German. She actually had a Reformation. You're pretty sure. Uh, at any rate, that is the day we celebrate where basically the Protestant church was born. And if you've ever been part of a Protestant church and you are here at one this morning, it is because of the Reformation. And so we choose to take that day. And um, what we do is we put a, an event here where we feed kids and we feed families and we get inside of the community. It's a day where a lot of people celebrate darkness. And it's, it, some consider it the darkest day of the year. And we are the light of the world. And we come into the community right here on our campus and shine bright with who we are, building relationships with all kinds of people who will step onto this campus who would never step uh, into church ever, ever, ever. And last year, we had well over 1,000 people attend the event. It is not only one of the largest events that we put on as a church, it has now become one of the largest events that's put on in the Truckee community, all in the name of Jesus. Yeah. <clears throat> so so here's, here, I got a couple big asks for you. One is, we do need candy. We want to bless all the kids. We need a lot of candy. So when you go to Costco, you go to Walmart, you go wherever, grab a bag, drop it off in the foyer. And if you don't want to buy candy because you do sincerely believe it's from Satan, you can give the money to the church, and then the church will buy it in Jesus' name. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then at the event, 
we need volunteers. We need volunteers. We need a couple different things. One is all of, the, all of this is connected with Big Bad Brad up here who normally does worship. He runs this event. And um, we, we need people who will set up a car and they'll decorate a car and you give out candy and you share the love of Jesus, share a hug with somebody, shake somebody's hand, get to know them, let them know that God loves them and come hang out. So decorate a car. We've got a couple, uh, uh, in fact, we've got three, uh, including mine. It'll be four uh, classic Mustangs from the Mustang Club in Reno. They're going to be here, uh, and they're going to show up and have their hot rods here. If you've got a hot rod, cool. If you've got a Pinto, why not bring it and uh, decorate it make, it, make it look cool. We need people to make hot dogs. We need people just to walk around and say hi. So please, I'm going to ask you, give lots of candy and, uh, and, and consider how you can serve. And I'm telling you, uh, Brad said in our staff meeting, he said, listen, be praying for this event because we want it to be glorified uh, for the Lord. We want people to, to encounter Jesus. And it's a big event for us. We put, a lot, we put a lot of energy and a lot of time in it. And by God's grace, it's really cool. The entire teen challenge group comes up during this event and they serve and they plug away. And we're so thankful to have them. We probably couldn't do it without them. So please consider that. That is uh, Halloween night. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, you, careful. I have a microphone. Oh, oh man. Marley, now they're promoting your haircuts. Okay. I'll share one story about how important this event is, uh, too. I had some friends that I grew up with, went to high school with here in the Truckee community, um, and uh, she got married, and they attend the Catholic Church on a regular basis. They're Catholics, and they've been coming to the event each year. Last year, uh, she came up to me with her whole family, and she said, you put us Catholics to shame. And, uh, and because of that event, uh, she and her family have attended periodically here at Sierra Bible Church to hear the message of grace. And so that's what we want to see come from an event like that. And if you get an opportunity, hug Brad. Just tell Brad thank you. He does so much behind the scenes here uh, to make sure that we are a church that is in the community for the community. <clears throat> um, and then uh, there, he needs help on the media side too. That's all video stuff, sound stuff, words, camera. We're trying to get our live feed up. We're having some issues with that, um, but we need some volunteers to run the camera, so connect with Brad on that as well. And then, of course, last week, uh, we made mention of the Women's Mentoring Program. There's still sign-ups for that at the info booth. If you are a gal who's looking to be mentored by a more mature gal, uh, we'd love to have you connect there at the info booth as well. With all that said and done, let's get into what we really are here for, yeah? Let's get into the Word of God. Now, um, we're going to be in chapter 3. Let me give you a quick highlight of where we're going uh, and what we're doing this morning here in Galatians. Galatians was written by Paul, and it, he wrote it in response to a church that he planted. He planted the church, and he planted it under the auspice, under the reality, under the truth that we are saved by grace alone in Jesus alone, and that we don't need anything else. We don't need anything else to be saved or to encounter relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he leaves the Galatian church and in crept a group of men called the Judaizers, men who knew the Old Testament and knew the Mosaic law very well. And what they did is they came in and they said, hey, listen, listen, I know Paul came in. Paul's not a real apostle is what they said. He's not a real teacher of God's word, uh, but we are. And we want you to know that Paul had it part right. He had half of it correct. The, the half was that Jesus was salvation, but in order to be saved, you also had to do these other things. You had to observe the purification laws, the Mosaic laws that exist in the Old Testament in Leviticus. 
and that you need to be circumcised, you need to eat the right foods, you need to practice the right traditions, and if you do these things, then you'll be saved. Paul hears of this, and he responds with Galatians. This is the book that, that bore the Reformation. It is the book that awakened Martin Luther. Martin Luther loved this book so much that he literally says that Galatians was his Catherine, which is the name of his wife. He says, I am betrothed to this book. I love this book. And so this is the book we're in. And we pick up after Paul has confronted Peter in chapter 2 and told Peter that Peter was a little off in his idea of the gospel. We now pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. So this morning, uh, if you are able to, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? And if indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Lord, let your word be true. And the church of Jesus Christ said, Amen. You may be seated. Luther, Luther had a quote that helps us understand what he's ultimately trying uh, to state in regards to uh, communicating that we are saved by faith alone and Jesus alone. Now, now the argument uh, throughout the entire book and the argument throughout the entire of the gospel, that the gospel's at stake. This is why, why Paul, he actually writes with such passion and vigor within this letter. You, you hear him in the beginning of this. If you note, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He seems to be shocked. He seems to be amazed that the church has turned from its original message to a whole other message in particular. And I think the question that has arised is, is the question that if I'm, if I'm really justified by faith, why is it that I still sin? Luther actually said, the doctrine of justification is this, that we are pronounced righteous, pronounced righteous before God. That is to be made holy. That is to be made right with God. We are pronounced righteous and are saved solely, he said, by faith in Christ and without works. Now, in Luther's day, there was a duke, the George of Saxony. He heard what Luther proclaimed, and he, he fought it. He, he said, this, that sounds like a great doctrine to, to die by, he said. That sounds like something that you would say on your deathbed. That sounds really good if you're about to die and you declare that I am saved by faith and therefore all of your sins are washed away. And so you can go to heaven just because you simply said something right before you were dying. He said, I've got an issue with that. He said, that, that's a, a great doctrine to die by, but it's a horrible one to live by, he said. His argument was that, that if you basically, if you preached that Jesus Christ saved you by grace and if you then also preached that Jesus Christ keeps you by faith and you live by faith, essentially what you'd be, you would do is you, you would just 
sin all week long, and you'd show up to church, and you would ask the priest for forgiveness. You would take communion. You would partake in the elements. You would, you would do the liturgical process, and through going through the liturgical process of the service, uh, no matter what day of the week it was, especially within Catholicism, then you'd be made right with God, which would allow you, therefore, to continue during the week to sin. So you then would go back on Sunday, and you end up in this perpetual rhythm where you sin, and, and, and then you ask for forgiveness, and you're good. As Wayne has said uh, in, in so many different sermons and different times, I love to sin, and God loves to forgive sin, thus it's a great relationship. <laughs> that, was, that was the Duke's argument. Paul's argument, however, is, is that it is, the, especially in the text we're reading here, that the idea that you are saved by grace isn't just a doctrine for salvation, it's the doctrine for life. In fact, he, he would go on to say that it's a doctrine. It's a doctrine for the whole life of the believer from start to finish. It's a doctrine for the damned because either at the end of the day, you will stand before God's wrath in faith alone or in your works alone. What would you rather stand before God in regards to? Your works or your faith? He went on to say justification is a doctrine for the doubtful. For when doubt comes into your life, you go back to the cross and you realize that in doubt that you're not saved by what you do, you're saved by your faith. He also said it's a doctrine for the discouraged. When all seems lost, we preach faith to ourselves that God will keep us and it encourages us. What Luther said is the reason, the reason that we still struggle with faith you would go on to say is because you are simul justice et Peccator, which literally means that you are simultaneously both righteous and a sinner. And any believer who's ever been saved for any length of time, you will recognize the bipolar state in which you exist in. At times, I feel as a pastor as if God could never be nearer. There are times where I feel his presence. It's there. There are other times where I wonder, God, where have you gone? There are times where I feel like, man, I am... I am pure, I am clean, I am forgiven. Other times, I feel like I've been beaten up. I, I feel depressed, I feel sad, I feel like I don't have a place to stand by before God. And, and Luther, out of the Reformation, gave us this grace, great statement that, that there's this already not yet theology in Scripture. The already is that you are already saved, but not, not yet. You're already pure and clean in God's eyes, but not yet. There's this already not yet that exists in Scripture where we realize there's something that is true today, but it's not totally true yet, and we're called as Christians to live as if it's true today no matter what. And what has happened in the particular text here is that, that they had this idea that they were saved by grace alone, and they were living by grace alone, in faith alone, in Jesus alone, and then they've made a switch. They've flip-flopped. And Paul literally says in verses 1 through 2, he says, this is foolish of you. Now remember, this is true of us today. There are all kinds of ways in which we try to earn our salvation, all kinds of different ways in which, in which we try to feel like we are right before God, all kinds of ways in which we try to deal with the nature that is humanity. See, the Bible is really, really good at teaching us that, that we are a broken people and that without God's intervention, the brokenness will never be solved. I was talking with a, a guy from another church in the area uh, this last week, and he was telling me that his pastor at his church keeps telling, telling them that, that, that you can never change the world with legislation alone. You've got to change the human heart. 
And this is the idea of what Luther is stating, that, that we, are, we, are, we are inside knowing that we are saved by grace, we're living by grace, we know we're loved, and that at other times we aren't only always clear of that. And, and, and this switch, he says, is foolish. The word foolish literally means mental laziness, carelessness. He, he's what Paul is essentially saying is, you started out strong in your faith, now you're running weak. And, and Paul is filled with, a, again, a mixture of, of anger and love and confusion and shock for his people. He wants to correct this behavior. Then he uses a word that's quite interesting for us this morning. Who has bewitched you? Now, this isn't just a word that means you've been tricked. It, it actually is alluding to the reality of what Paul is saying is that this kind of flip-flop of the mind, this kind of, of stuff in the Christian faith is actually a demonic force that Satan himself, not just the Judaizers, when Paul says, who's bewitched you? He knows exactly who's bewitched them. He knows exactly who's been in the church, the Judaizers. But he's not saying, I know the Judaizers' teaching. He's not saying it's the Judaizers' fault. He's not saying it's the Judaizers' doctrine. He's not saying it's what they're teaching you. He's saying, you have been bewitched. Wake up to the spiritual reality that exists within the Christian life. There is a spiritual battle. The, the language of bewitching, if you look it up in the original language, it literally means to cast a spell upon, to put under hypnotic influence. It's also associated with being charmed or fascinated. And the way in which one is fascinated, it says within the original language here, is with feeling over fact. Being tricked to put your emotion into your faith and not your emotion into truth in Christ alone. One commentator says it like this. <clears throat> The Christian life is neither lived on the basis of good feelings or attractive inclinations, but on the basis of God's truth. Pay attention to that word there in a moment, truth, in Christ. Christians who rely on self-oriented emotions instead of Scripture-oriented minds are doomed to be tossed to and fro by the waves, carried everywhere by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. When they judge an idea, idea when, we, when we flip-flop, he says, on the basis of how good it is to make them feel or how nice it sounds, rather than on the basis of the harmony of God's word, they are in serious spiritual danger. Now, here's the challenge. Here's, here's what the text is saying. That you, you can be going through something negative within your mind, within your life. There can be an emotion that exists within your life. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. And those things can exist in your life simply because there's a spiritual bondage, a pressure of the demonic forces pressing in upon your life to trick you into thinking things that aren't true. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a thought in your mind and just thought for a moment, let's say it's a depressive thought, and thought to yourself, maybe that thought wasn't from me? How many of you have ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis hit it on the head with that book. In fact, uh, I was talking with someone this week, and they said that C.S. Lewis, after writing that book, for those of you who aren't familiar with the book, uh, it's a book in which, which uh, one older, more mature demonic force, a demon, is communicating with a younger demon and how to bewitch, how to trick its victim, which is a human being. And so as you read it, you go through the book, you start being awakened to these schemes. And someone was telling me this week that C.S. Lewis said after that, writing that book and after experiencing those emotions and thoughts, he would never write another book on demonic forces again. 
But what Paul is teaching, what the screw tape letters teach us to a certain degree, though it is not biblical text, is that Satan, first of all, you have to know this biblically, <coughs> excuse me, Satan hates you. Did you know that? He doesn't like you. Well, I, I, I should rephrase that. If you were a Christian this morning, he doesn't like you. But if you've never given your life to Christ, and if you're walking according to the ways of this world, he has no problems with you. He's not your enemy. So Paul is stating that there's a spiritual reality in which is occurring here. And, and one of the things that I have found and, and have realized, even more so recently, just through a, a couple series of events in my own life, is that oftentimes when spiritual battle comes upon the life of a believer, when demonic forces start to occur, when a bewitching starts to occur upon a believer, a believer will oftentimes say, it simply can't be the enemy. The enemy could never do that to me because I'm a believer. Why would, why would Satan do this to me? Why would the devil do this to me? I'm protected by Jesus. But then that's when we have to go back to the biblical text of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where it states that our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then it tells us in Ephesians to put on what? The whole armor of God. I don't have time to get into it, but if you read the text, there's two parts to the armor of God. One part, which is bestowed to you upon salvation. It's yours, the helmet of salvation. It's there. Another part of the armor of God, you have to put on yourself daily. How many of you have gone through a week where you have felt beat up, downtrodden, just angry and frustrated and depressed. Do you know that it's possible that that is Satan himself? That is the, the demonic forces of the world. Here, here's my hope this morning. Let me read this text again. Let me just make it aware to you. Write it down. It's in your notes, but write it down. You can make, put a tattoo on you. I don't care. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power. Our weapons against spiritual forces have divine power, and it says literally here now in the rest of the text, to destroy strongholds. Here's why this message is so important this morning. It is possible for you to be saved, and it is still possible in your salvation to be held in bondage to certain things in your life. Both things can be true. And here's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying, listen, because of the power of God and the power of the gospel, that if you pay attention to these things, you can actually break these bondages. You can break these chains. And in addition to breaking those chains, you can break through in your relationship with God. So let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you this morning want a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, hopefully that's everybody. Now, at the same time, you may be saying, I've, I've been trying, I've been trying. And, and can I just pose to you this morning that it's possible that the, in your effort, in your effort of trying, which is what Galatians is saying is, you can't break these bondages. But Jesus can. Because it's not about your efforts. It's not about, it's not about, so many Christians will say, if I just do these things, I'll get out of bondage. I've been saved for long enough to tell you that doesn't work. It doesn't work. What works is the gospel. What works is an application of the gospel to the life of the believer and the truth that comes from Scripture. So, so here's what I'm going to do this morning. As I said, this, I think this is an important message. Because, because if you get this, hopefully this morning some chains will fall to the ground this morning and we'll hear some shackles hit the floor. 
And in having those shackles hit the floor, you'll break through in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And not only will you grow, but God's kingdom and God's church will grow, especially in the Tahoe Basin. Anybody want to see more people in the Tahoe Basin come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to that we all say? All right, next. Appreciate it. I'll coach you along. I'm going to tell you what to believe. Okay, here we go. Here's how you break the spell. We're going to break the spell this morning. How do you break the spell? How do you break the bewitching? Truth number one. You break the bewitching with the truth. Look at verse one of chapter three. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then he gives his argument why, why in the world they shouldn't think this. And, and just, just so you're clear, this idea of bewitching and foolishness and how, how awful it is, J.B. Phillips translates this verse as Paul states it, Oh, dear idiots of Galatia, surely you cannot be so idiotic. <laughs> Essentially, this is what Paul's saying. He's, he's, he is frustrated. And I was telling the church in the first service, you've got to be careful with this word idiot. You don't want your kids to say it. And I, I tell my kids, and you should teach your kids not to say that word. And there was a little girl in the first service, and she said, yeah, my parents tell me, but that doesn't stop me. Which I said, that's true. And uh, you're going to be, you know, in trouble after the service probably. But, okay. Um, <clears throat> so, so how do you fight it? Number one, you, you fight, you break the spell with the truth. Notice what Paul says in his counterargument of why this is so foolish. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He states the truth. Let me tell you, when it comes to fighting demonic forces, your number one advocate is the truth. The truth that comes from Scripture. Now, now what happens is, if you, if you remember from the earlier quote from the commentary, it says that if, if your minds are not oriented on Scripture, you're doomed to be tossed to and fro by doctrine that is teaching from the trickery of men, craftiness, and deceitful scheming. If you're being deceived, you don't know you're being deceived. You with me? And the only way to come out of that darkness is to allow the light of Scripture, the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to shine on the lie so that it can be exposed so you're no longer deceived. Here's the question for us to ask this morning. When you look at Jesus... Because what he says is in the truth. He says, it was before your eyes you saw Jesus Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, the Galatian church didn't actually see Jesus crucified. What is he saying? He's saying, I preached to you in such a way that I made Christ vivid to you. I, I preached the word of God in such a way is what he's saying that you could actually see, touch, and taste who Jesus is. In fact, uh, it was Calvin who said, uh, said this, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit as I read it to you, but he says, we need, we need pastors, essentially what he's saying in this text here, that claim to penetrate through the gospel into the conscience of men that we may see Christ crucified, that his blood may flow. Then he goes on to say, when the church has, I love this language, when the church has such painters as these, she no longer leads, needs wood and stone that is dead images. She no longer requires any pictures. See, Calvin believed that the church should have no iconic imagery in the church at all, none at all. And he said the reason is because what should be placed before us is the word of God preached in such a way that the only visible thing that captures our attention is Jesus himself. That's why when somebody says, you got to have a cross in the sanctuary. No, you don't. You need an open Bible 
and you need Jesus proclaimed. The only thing that should, our eyes should be affixed upon is Jesus himself. Now, now, does that mean that we don't do artwork? No, I think Calvin took it a little too far. But it does mean that when it comes to images, especially iconic images, they should not enrapture us. What should enrapture us is the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. As one author said, when you look at Jesus, do you see him holding stone tablets in his hands or do you see holes in his hands? What is it that you see when you encounter Jesus? And the truth is, that Jesus loves you because he has holes in his hands. Not because you have holes in your hands, and not because you've earned your salvation, but because Jesus Christ has earned salvation on your behalf. You want to fight the bewitchery? You stand before the enemy and you state, I am found hidden in Christ alone through faith alone. There is no accusation against me. There is no condemnation that I hold. I stand before the throne of God as a white, beautiful, pure bride of Christ. That's number one. Number two, Paul, Paul appeals to their personal experience, and so should you. Look at what he states in verse two. I ask you this. He then goes on to ask four questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the, the Spirit, are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing by faith? He, he, he continually is stating, he says, okay, listen, here's the question he's asking. Where, where were you when you got saved? Everyone step back if you can this morning to the first day that you can remember, that you can recollect that you gave your life to Jesus. For me, it was after 12 years of living in a home filled with drugs and alcohol, violence and hatred. My mom received Jesus Christ. Everything changed. She was tucking me into bed one night at 12 years old, and I asked her why she was different. And she shared the gospel of Jesus with me. And then she said, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior? And I remember this thought has stuck with me ever since the time I was 12. A God who can change my family, why would I not accept that God? And right then and there, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and to live with me, and he's never let me go. But you know one thing I wasn't doing up to 12 years old? Jesus, where are you? You know what else I wasn't doing? I wasn't going to church every week to earn his love. I wasn't knocking on church walls. I wasn't even necessarily reading the Bible. What Paul is saying, he's saying, where were you? And he's speaking now to, to not only Jews, but also Gentiles who weren't even part of the promise of God. He's writing this to, to men who don't know anything about the Jewish faith. And he's saying, where were you when Jesus saved you? They're like, well, we were, we're just like Roman citizens doing what Romans do. We weren't doing anything. And so he's appealing to them by their experience, saying you were saved because Jesus intervened in your life, not because you were seeking Jesus. And I would appeal to you this morning, if you're going to fight the enemy, you have to go back to your personal experience. Jesus has always intervened in your life, and he will always intervene in your life because he loves you that much. You can't do this on your own. Number one, the truth of God. Number two, your personal experience. And then number three, in verses two, verses three, and verses five, he uses the word three different times. He tells us to remember the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You know, when you uh, <clears throat> become a Christian, when you like literally and really put your faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, when you, when you finally make the leap, you jump over and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to live my life my way anymore. You, you actually make 
Jesus Lord because of what he's done on the cross for you. There's all kinds of implications to that. We don't have time to get into all of them, but you know that Jesus has taken his righteousness and he gives it to you and he takes your sin and he puts it upon himself and then he murders it on the cross and he buries it in the grave and then he comes back to life to show that he and he alone has the keys over death. And when you realize that gospel truth and you give your life to Jesus, you jump over that fence, the Bible teaches us that then we are given the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God himself comes and indwells each and every single believer. The same Spirit, we're told, that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. That same Spirit comes to live and exist in you. This is one of the things that that makes Christianity unique above all other religions. It makes it superior than all other religions. In that, if, if you are a spiritual person in any other religion, you have to do something to earn favor or do something to earn peace or tranquility. You have to do something. In fact, for many religions, in order to be close to your God, you have to actually make a journey to a Mecca. Islam has a Mecca. Buddhism has a Mecca, a place to go, a place to visit. And the closer you get to the Mecca, the holier and more purified it is. But you know in Christianity, there's no Mecca. Jesus himself, as he walked the earth, and he walked by the temple, which was the Mecca for the Jews, he said of the temple that not one stone will be left. It will be torn down. The sacrificial system will no longer be needed. The rituals will no longer be needed. The temple will fall. And in 70 AD, what happened? It fell. Hasn't been one since. Because the temple, the Mecca of the Christian faith, is inside the Christian heart, inside the Christian soul. The only journey that needs to be made in order to receive salvation is to look inward and to recognize how sinful you are and then to look exterior that, Lord, I need what is considered an alien righteousness. Have you ever heard that term before? It's a theological term that that in order to be made righteous, to be made right with God, I need something outside of myself that's going to do that for me. See, what Christianity teaches is that inside of you, you do not possess the power to make yourself a better human being. And not just a better human being, because that's not, the gospel's not about being a better human being, it's about making dead people come alive, amen? So how does that happen? An alien righteousness. God comes from without and comes within, and we're told through the text of many different verses in the New Testament that it's the Holy Spirit that saves, it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies, a big word for helps us grow, it's the Holy Spirit that preserves us. You know what that means, to be preserved Ephesians 1.13 literally says that we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. How many of you have a deck? You have a porch. And, and you'll, you'll notice every so often if you own a wooden deck made out of real wood, not that synthetic stuff, that every now and then what do you have to do to that deck? You've got to seal it. I just sealed mine uh, about a month ago. And, uh, and the reason for it is because the snow's coming. Stupid snow. It's coming. And it's going to snow, and then I'm going to go outside, and I'm going to do what wise people do when it snows. They shovel their deck, okay? If you don't like your deck or you want a new deck, you just leave your snow there. I clear it. And after so many seasons, it, 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 it has the marks of dents and, and cuts, and, and the bare wood starts to show underneath. And so every now and then, I've got to go outside. I have to take the stain, and I've got to seal that deck. And when I seal that deck, what happens is the life of the deck is preserved. The integrity of the deck is preserved. 
And I, I then can use that deck the way that it was intended to be used to have good little times of meal and barbecues and hangout. But if I don't seal the deck, the deck eventually is going to decay and it's going to die. And this is what Jesus says. He says, I'm the spirit that comes inside of you and I preserve you. I give you preservation. I, I'm going to keep you to the end of time. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to make sure that you make it to the end. That's what the spirit does. You can't make it to the finish line by yourself, guys. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. And every now and then when we're in spiritual battle and warfare, we have to go before the God of the universe who, who made the world and recognize that he's in us. We have to confront ourselves with the truth of God so we're not deceived and say, Lord, fill me with the Holy Ghost. You know that there, there is what we call within the Trinity, Godhead, personhood, the Holy Spirit is a person, it's a spirit, but it's a person that you can talk to and you can speak to. And at some point in our, our, our sanctification, we should be able to say, I love you, Jesus. I love you, God. I love you, Holy Spirit. Spirit, would you overtake me? Would you indwell me? Would you fill me? Would you empower me? Because the Spirit, we're also told, empowers us for service. See, when, when you're filled with the Spirit, you actually become a Christian. You can't help but be stasis. You can't be static. You've got to continue to grow and you've got to be continued to be challenged. And so what happens when the Spirit comes inside of you is he convicts you of sin and he guides you along the path of righteousness. And then he starts telling you, you've got to start serving and you've got to start getting in community. Because you can't grow past the, the bondage and past the bewitchery that Satan's tricking you in by yourself. You need a good Christian brother and sister, just as Paul is doing here. And every now and then you need somebody who loves you and you know they love you and you love them and they look at you and they say, quit being so dumb. <laughs> we need that. And, and it's, it's a little frustrating for me in our day and age because I don't know if you know this or not, but we live in the most sensitive American culture that has ever existed don't tell me I'm dumb. Okay, okay. You're biblically challenged right now. <laughs> You're grace challenged right now. Whatever way I've got to massage you. But, you know, you've you got to understand that every now and then Paul just says, you know what, Galatians? I don't know who's bewitched you, but you're acting like an idiot right now and you need to repent of your sin and you need to return to the grace of Jesus Christ and you need the balm of the Holy Spirit every now and then to kind of punch you in the gut. You know, someone said to me last week, the greatest compliment I could ever receive as a pastor. They said, you know what, man, when you, when you preach, you make me want to read my Bible more. It's the greatest compliment I could ever receive. Not, hey, I want to buy your book, but I haven't written one. <laughs> Not, hey, I love your podcast. Not, hey, I love your YouTube videos. Not, no, 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 no. Hey, you, you make me want to read my Bible. And then he said, I don't even understand all of it when I'm reading it but I'm wanting to get more of it. You know, sometimes you're not understanding what's happening in Scripture, not because you're dumb, not because you don't understand it, but because Satan is bewitching you and he's fighting against you to keep you from understanding it. A couple weeks ago, I, I saw a quote from a pastor, a friend of mine, and he was speaking to other pastors in his tweet, and he just said, Pastor, just know this. On Sunday, you're going to feel tired after your message, not only because you've preached the good word, but because there's been spiritual forces of the enemy who've been trying to punch you down while you do it. If you think for one moment that we're in this room alone, you're sadly mistaken. First of all, Jesus is in the room. He's in this room with us. And he wants us to get into that battle and to fight that warfare with his spirit that we would not be blinded, that we would break through the bondage, that we would be empowered 
for service and that we would recognize the great joy that Jesus has for us as we are sealed in him. Just, just as I said, once that deck is sealed, the deck has a purpose, to hang out and to fellowship and to eat good food and to enjoy life. Jesus wants you to enjoy this life now as well as the next one, even though you're at warfare. Last point. Last point this morning. Let me review here real quickly. You want to break the spell. Number one, you need the truth, the truth specifically, the vivid truth of Jesus on the cross. Number two, you need to go back to your personal experience. Recognize how you were saved. Number three, you need the power of the Holy Spirit. And number four, you go all the way back into the Old Testament and you realize that this idea of being justified by truth and being kept by God by faith goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And Paul mentions in verses six through nine, an old character most of us are familiar with. What's his name? Abraham. Now what about Abraham? Genesis chapter 15 tells us that God took Abraham outside one night. He said, Abraham, look up to the skies. Do you see the stars? I'm going to give you as many children as there are stars, which was kind of a big, big deal for Abraham because he was old. So was his wife. They were past child-rearing years, and, and he stood there, and, and God said, you see, I'm going to do this for you. Now, what I need you to do, Abraham, is by faith, I need you to leave the land in which you live, and I need you to go to a land that you don't even know of. You're not going to know where you're going, but you just need to go. So by faith, Abraham, Abraham actually leaves, and, and later through a whole series of events, we know that Abraham has a son, and his son is named Isaac, and it's his only son. After God had made this promise and said, by faith you need to leave because I'm going to make of you many nations. Basically, we told Abraham, as many people are going to come to the saving knowledge of Yahweh through you. So leave. After a series of events, he has the son, Isaac, and, and as Isaac is a little bit older, God tells Abraham, by faith, take Isaac to the top of a mountain and sacrifice Isaac to me. Give me your only son. And so he does. He climbs the mountain. He takes Isaac up to the top of the mountain. He's about to kill Isaac. But in his mind, it, it is said that, that he knew that God himself would, pro would provide the right sacrifice. And Isaac is preserved, and there is a lamb within the thicket, and that lamb is sacrificed, foreshadowing the image of the cross that Jesus would be crucified on our behalf. All that to be said, it is told to us in the Old Testament that those actions, that those actions made that Abraham's faith made Abraham righteous. Why is that a big deal? Because, see, the Judaizers came in and said, hey, listen, if you're actually going to be made righteous, you have to adhere to the law. It isn't by faith alone. It's also by the law. It's faith and law. Faith and law. So what Paul now is saying, is saying, the Judaizers have it all wrong. You know how I know? Because Abraham was considered righteous, and the law hadn't even been given yet. There was no law. You know why that's such a huge implication? Because God provided the solution for our brokenness before we were even aware of the problem. The problem was sin. The problem was brokenness. We didn't even know what sin was. Paul said, I wouldn't know sin if I didn't have the Ten Commandments. I wouldn't even know what sin is. And now the law comes, we're aware that we need a solution. But God has always been working on the solution. This is why within this passage and within that great song, right, I don't know if the kids are singing it next door, but there's great theological implications to the song. Do you remember the song? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Welcome to Children's Church. The Judaizers had it a little bit different. Judaizers sang it this way. Father Abraham had many sons, 
and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and you are not. So let's all get together for a little procedure we call circumcision. <clears throat> Sung a little differently. What Paul essentially is telling us, he's saying that the salvation of the Gentile, the salvation of the Jew, the salvation of the Greek, the salvation of the rich, the salvation of the poor, the salvation of the brokenhearted, the salvation of the downtrodden, the salvation of the slave, the salvation of the rich man, all come through faith in Jesus Christ, the same God that existed in the Old Testament, the same God that exists in the New Testament, and it's the same salvation for all people in all of the world. It's Jesus alone and faith alone, and we fight the spiritual battle knowing that we are deeply loved and cared for in God and Christ Jesus. Amen? So as the team comes up for us to partake in communion, elders, deacons, if you'd come forward. <clears throat> John, you want to help out, buddy? John's a retired pastor, so we'll get him out of retirement every now and then. Andrew, you'd come up, yeah? Um, we get to partake in communion this morning. And as we do that, you know, each week... I, I've been trying to just present something to you that, that, as the gentleman who said to me last week, you make me want to read the Bible more. And that is, that is ultimately what I'm trying to do. I'm, I want you to fall in love with Jesus. I want you to read the Bible more. And so I've been trying to just give you something in, in the way of, okay, give me something practical um, to, take, to take home in, in regards to the text. So here, here's the introspection here. Number one, I want you, in what ways do you rely on your flesh? You can take time even during communion. Uh, Frank, you can come on up. Um, in what ways do you rely on your flesh rather than faith in the gospel and for your ongoing acceptance? How and why? So here, here's the challenge. What typically happens is when, when we start to feel the spiritual battle in our particular context of Americans, do you know what we do? We, we do anything we can to not think about it. It's an inconvenience. So number two, it asks, ask, ask this. Think of a sin that you regularly commit. What are you worshiping more than Jesus that causes you to decide to disobey him? How will you replace that false savior, false idol, with your true savior next time you're tempted? Because here's what we do. We, instead of going to Jesus and making Jesus the author of salvation as he's supposed to do, we end up getting on our phones so we don't have to think about why we feel the way we feel. We get on the internet, or we watch Netflix, or you watch Amazon Prime, or whatever it is that you like to watch, whatever it is that you like to do. Maybe you have a few drinks to numb the pain. And here's the deal. You're never going to break bondage by dealing with your problems in that way. You won't. But Jesus is powerful enough to break those chains this morning. He's powerful enough to make sure that you're not bewitched. That power exists in you. You have no reason to fear Satan or the devil at all because Jesus has already crushed the head of the enemy. And one of the deceptions that the devil likes to do within the church is to try to get you to think that somehow, someway, Satan is someone to be feared. He's not to be feared. He's hiding in the dark for a reason. He's been conquered. And you're a true child of God. And so as we partake in communion, take time maybe just to go through this. Take some time this week to go through it. Um, and uh, if, you, if you haven't been here before, we'll hand you out the elements and uh, hold on to them and we'll partake together. But take some time to meditate and to worship and to think upon the Lord as the elements are handed forth. <clears throat>